Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Podcast, a thought leadership series designed for C-level executives, board members, and other top decision makers. Hello, I'm Corey McLaughlin, co-president of the Investment Industry Services Practice at Cohen & Company. Welcome to this episode of Chief Insights, which will focus on current operational considerations related to digital assets. Specifically, what do investors need to consider when it comes to the custody of their digital assets? And what are the related accounting and tax concerns as they currently stand? I'm also here with Will Coleman, who is the Director of Technology Advisory Services at Cohen & Company. Will is an expert in the digital asset space, particularly the technology underlying digital assets. I have worked on the audit side of the space, and we are both here today to share some of our operational learnings that we have had being involved in this emerging asset class over the last couple of years. Will, let's start with what we mean by the term digital assets. What type of assets are we talking about? Well, digital assets, Corey, can actually cover a pretty wide range. Um, in general, you're talking about something that is an asset that you're representing with uh, a cryptographic token, and I can give you some examples of this. So what you hear most commonly is something like Bitcoin. Everybody's heard that in the news these days. Uh, Bitcoin is a cryptographic currency or cryptocurrency, and that is used as a way of payment, and that's sort of the idea, or a store of value if you're both terms but it's intended to sort of represent value. Uh, there's something called a utility token. A utility token is something that would act more like a, a game token, you know, for playing a video game or something like that. It simply has one purpose. It's not generally fungible. So that's, you know, that's the definition of that is a little bit vague at the moment, uh, if you ask the SEC, but we can go into that later. Um, and then you have the concept of a security token. And a security token uh, represents equity, or some sort of financial interest in the underlying asset, be that a building or a company or what have you. So Will, that was a fantastic discussion about digital assets. One common term that we often hear in the digital asset space is, is blockchain. Could you give some context in terms of what blockchain means? Uh, sure, of course. Uh, blockchain is the underlying technology that these digital assets run on. You'll also hear the term distributed ledger technology. Uh, occasionally, you'll hear the term Merkle chain. But in essence, all of these things are a method of recording data, uh, a database, if you will, that allows us to keep track of you know, how things went from one person to another. Uh, you can think of it as chain of custody you know, from, from a legal standpoint. So there's a bunch of sophisticated math that goes along with this cryptography that allows you to be sure that the previous events are reliable and that you can build on them. Again, it's a, it's a ledger. It's, it's things moving from one person to another, from one place to another. So, Will, when we t are talking about digital assets, how an investor holds those assets or custody of those assets is very different from what we see in traditional asset classes. So, for investors that are interested in, in investing in this space and, and or holding uh, digital assets, what high-level custody considerations should they think about when they're considering investing in this asset class? Well, I think that depends on what they intend to do in this space. There's a lot of uh, custodial options that are currently available, um, but they are largely driven by your investment strategy. If you are looking to do something like arbitrage or you're a fund manager trying to do uh, high-frequency trading, then most your custodial options are going to be uh, on exchange and they are not typically what you would think of as a custodian or a qualified custodian. 
if you have a lower frequency uh, trading strategy, whether that's you're personally buying stuff and holding it uh, for longer term investments or you're participating in some sort of uh, entity uh, that might be issuing equity tokens or security tokens, the custodial options are much broader. Um, there are, of course, a lot of considerations uh, that, that have to be looked at today. Um, there's always the issue of record retention and availability. These are new companies, it's a nascent space, and a lot of these companies have not really, uh, they've evolved from the tech side, not the financial side, so the reporting may not be as strong as we might be used to or might prefer and what we would like. Uh, so you really have to do a lot of due diligence uh, around these individual entities. Um, you have to look at credit, credit risk, uh, their IT security. Uh, it's a huge issue. This asset class has a unique phenomenon where uh, there's no outside party in most cases that's able to reverse a transaction. So once it's done, it's done. So IT security is very important because that, that feature of this asset class makes it very attractive for uh, hackers and the like. You have to look at segregation of duties and internal controls within these custodians. Uh, again, these are often smaller organizations and it's sometimes difficult for them to you know, broadly separate roles as you would do in a larger organization. And then there's also the issue of key recovery. Again, this has a unique, a unique feature of this class where you don't just worry about whether the asset is stolen, you can actually lose access to this asset by losing uh, your private key. So you can actually know where it is and just not be able to unlock the safe, so to speak. And unfortunately, in this case, there's no way to call a locksmith in to, to unlock it for you. It's just stuck in there forever. So those are sort of some real high-level things about custody. Uh, obviously, we could spend a lot more time on this. So since we've been in this space for a while, Corey, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of very interesting things, Perhaps you could talk about some of the uh, common accounting issues and concerns and the like that you have seen in this space. So I think for uh, managers who are considering launching funds uh, that invest in digital assets, it's really important to start with accounting policies, particularly in this asset class. They are absolutely critical. And we'll start with uh, hard forks and airdrops. So an airdrop is a free distribution of a small amount of tokens related to a new or emerging token that is provided to those that hold certain types of wallets. It's often performed as a marketing tool for the new tokens. Um, hard forks are situations where a, a certain blockchain may decide uh, that there's two different positions that they want to take related to security of the blockchain or how the blockchain operates or something of that nature and decide that they want to go in two different directions. And so that blockchain will fork at that point, which will create um, what's referred to as a hard fork. And so, for instance, there was a situation where Bitcoin blockchain forked and we had Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And so at the time that Bitcoin Cash was created, an investor that holds Bitcoin then gets a right equivalent to um, for each Bitcoin token that they hold, one Bitcoin Cash token in that, that instance. So um, some things that need to be considered from a policy perspective are when do you recognize the value of that hard fork? Um, is it when you claim it or when you're able to claim it? And some things that need to be considered, as Will discussed earlier, is how you custody the assets. So in some situations, you may custody that on an exchange or a marketplace. 
And so the first consideration related to a hard fork is, is that exchange or marketplace going to support that hard fork? And what I mean by that is, if you hold Bitcoin on that exchange or marketplace, will you get the right to Bitcoin Cash in that example that I gave earlier or not? So that will drive um, some of your accounting decisions. Um, in addition, how will cost be allocated and should cost be allocated related to that hard fork? Uh, you also need to consider different IT risks as it relates to whether you actually want to claim that hard fork or not. So there are some situations where hard forks may be viewed as a security risk, not worth the effort to claim. Uh, and that's something that our managers run into quite often. In addition, there may be some situations where a hard fork occurs and initially it doesn't appear like it's secure enough in order to claim or it doesn't really have any value and you may want to claim that later. So in a situation where you're operating a fund structure and you have underlying investors, the question arises as to how do you allocate that revenue? Um, do you allocate it based on the initial date of the hard fork or do you allocate it on the date that you claim that hard fork? So these are some, some specific areas that, that need to be considered. Another area that's really, really critical and different from traditional asset classes in the digital asset space is valuation. Uh, this asset class operates very, very differently from, from traditional asset classes in the sense that, for instance, uh, these assets trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so that means if you are operating a fund type structure, you're going to want to, on the front end, develop an accounting policy that dictates First of all, when you're going to strike valuation, and a common time that we see valuation struck for fund-type structures is 11.59 p.m. UTC. And the reason that that is the case is it's sort of become a generally accepted best practice within the industry, and it's also a time that's very readily reported in the digital asset space. Um, in addition, you need to perform what's referred to as a principal market determination. And in traditional asset classes, such as common stocks, for instance, that is a pretty easy process. So uh, if you have a certain uh, GE type stock and it tra trades on the New York Stock Exchange, it's very easy to determine that that's the principal market. In the digital asset space, it's, it's a little bit more difficult. Principal market is defined as the market with the greatest volume and level of activity for the asset and also should be a market that, that the entity or person has access to. So in the digital asset space, digital assets can trade across many, many, many different markets. That does not mean, though, that you have access to all of those markets either. So you need to take a look out at how you're trading and where the volume of activity is and determine your principal market in advance so that you can have that within your accounting policies and you can point to that market as how you will strike your fair value uh, on a monthly or whatever your liquidity basis is. One other area to be aware of is if you're entering into initial coin offerings or simple agreements for future tokens. And what these are is these are blockchain type projects that are in the developmental stage where investors invest on the front end to help 
spawn the project. Um, so in these situations, trying to mark to fair value can be very similar to striking a fair value over a hard to value instrument, i.e. Um, a private company or something like that. So there needs to be a lot of expertise and detailed analysis of the initial coin offerings, um, as well as um, a, a direct look at the agreements to understand the terms of the agreements. So what we have seen in the space is a lot of the initial coin offerings can have specific liquidation terms. If, if the project doesn't get off the ground, it can release tokens in tranches that can impact valuation. So some of the common factors that we see related to uh, initial coin offerings in terms of valuing them is taking a look at subsequent rounds of financing that maybe happen after uh, you invested in those. Uh, sometimes there's futures markets that exist that can help determine value. Uh, there's disc discount for lack of marketability type models that can be considered. So what we recommend is in situations where you are investing in these types of products and you need to strike to fair value that you consult with an expert in, in valuation. So obviously with such a new space, there aren't just a lot of accounting questions that come up, but I've got to imagine that there are a lot of tax issues that come up and a lot of interpretations that have to be made. Can you speak a little bit to the tax side of things as well? Sure. So one of the, the fun part of being part of this asset class and, and working in this asset class is that there hasn't been a lot um, defined. And so uh, it's been fun to be part of uh, developing best practices as it relates to the asset space. And this is certainly the case uh, as it relates to the IRS and, and, and different tax issues. So uh, the IRS currently has been virtually silent since the only published formal cryptocurrency tax guidance that happened in, in 2014. Unfortunately, because of recent changes from tax reform, we do not anticipate any big revelations in the near future. As such, we are limiting to, to interpreting cryptocurrency taxation as it may fit within the existing tax code. Based on the 2014 guidance, we know that for income tax purposes, cryptocurrency is considered property from an IRS perspective. That means that any transfer of cryptocurrency, including trading one cryptocurrency for another cryptocurrency, or trading US dollar or British pound or, or whatever government-backed currency that you use for cryptocurrency is going to be a taxable event. So if you uh, experience any income or loss from that event, it will be taxable at that time. One question that we receive quite often from a lot of our clients is whether cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency transfers could be considered a like-kind exchange, which would allow a deferral of the recognition of the gain if there was a gain. Um, pursuant to the tax reform that's happened for tax years beginning on and after January 1, 2018, like-kind exchanges are now limited to real property and therefore not even a consideration as it relates to cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency transactions. Uh, there has been a bill recently introduced into the House uh, that would expand the exclusion for like-kind exchanges to include cryptocurrencies. Uh, we do not anticipate that this bill is going to move out of the House, but it is a good sign that our, our lawmakers are considering 
um, some of the issues that relate to the IRS treatment of cryptocurrency as property. Another hot topic that we see is similar to one of the things we discussed previously in the accounting section, uh, which is the tax treatment as it relates to hard forks and or airdrops. Um, many questions still remain unanswered uh, as it relates to this, including the amount that must be recognized as income, uh, the timing of that rec income recognition, uh, the allocation of cost or basis, uh, the fair market value of the hard fork or airdrop time tokens at the time of receipt, and the characterization of the income. There has been a lot of discussion regarding the proper tax treatment as it relates to hard forks and airdrops. Uh, however, most administrators and practitioners agree that hard forks and airdrops should be considered income realization events for tax purposes. Hmm. So therefore, um, the holder that receives tokens in a hard fork or an airdrop should recognize those tokens as ordinary income at the time of receipt. Uh, the basis in the tokens received in a hard fork or airdrop should equal uh, the fair market value of the tokens at the time the taxpayer realizes the gain. In the absence of further guidance, uh, many taxpayers are taking the position that the value of the new cryptocurrency at the time it is received should be zero, meaning the investor recognizes no gain and receives a basis of zero in the new cryptocurrency. Any subsequent or sale or transfer of the new cryptocurrency would then be 100% gain uh, to the taxpayer. This treatment is based on the idea that there is no existing market for the new cryptocurrency in a hard fork at the time of receipt, and therefore at the moment of receipt, it has no ascertainable value. A similar treatment may be available for certain airdrops that are not currently trading on exchanges. So those are some of the common tax questions that we are currently getting as it relates to the space. And with that, I'd like to move forward and, and, and allow Will to give us maybe a few quick thoughts on what he sees as emerging trends in the digital asset space. Sure. Obviously, the, the drawdown that's taken place over the last year has been uh, what you hear in all the headlines. But with this downturn in cryptocurrency valuations, uh, you know, there's fewer startup funds. We're starting to see that, that there's not as many people who are, are looking to, to jump into the space right at the moment. But this is also has had some very good uh, impacts, which is it's sort of reduced the urgency that the regulators have or seem to feel to come in and uh, put a bunch of new rules in place. So the regulators are sort of are given a little bit of breathing room. They're giving an opportunity to kind of see the market, not just when it's up, but also when it's down. So this sort of uh, provides uh, a window to, to say, well, this is how it works in one way. This is how it works on the way back down. And we can kind of develop more holistic or more complete rules. Um, the other interesting thing is it's given us with the drawdown, uh, and this is unfortunate in some ways, but uh, fortunate, I guess, in others, an opportunity to develop some case law. There's a lot more, there's a lot more case law that's being developed. There's a lot more cases that are being tried uh, in a down market uh, than in an up market. People are, you know, feel injured or 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 some or otherwise uh, damaged financially, and this generates uh, legal conflict. Uh, this gives us a little bit of a more of a base and it shows us a little bit more how the, the courts are going to interpret some of these cases, which is very, very helpful. And then sort of when you get out of the regulatory space, uh, there's a lot more focus on blockchain technology uh, as a whole, not just the use of it as cryptocurrency, um, but there's more focus on using it to tokenize existing securities, 
tokenize other types of financial instruments, such as commodity contracts, uh, which is sort of a natural progression of this technology. The tokenization uh, doesn't just facilitate things like settlement. That's one that you very commonly hear is that tokenization, uh, digital tokenization allows you to very quickly settle uh, transactions and trades, and it does. But it also allow, allows for uh, cross-exchange transfers. So the ability to move from one exchange to another very quickly and to have that driven by the person who actually owns the asset. This, this hasn't been lost on the uh, traditional exchanges. They've recognized uh, the, the liquidity advantage that exists there. Um, and so there's sort of a generalization or an adoption of that technology. And then also, I think we've gotten a chance to see where the protocols themselves are weak, where the underlying protocols need to evolve more. Uh, there's an awful lot of discussion about scalability that really wasn't happening two or three years ago, which really means that you're starting to get the academics back re-engaged and really looking at what we have to do to have these things function uh, cross-jurisdictionally as well as on a global scale. And I think that shift, uh, as the speculators have been a little bit less active, uh, is a good one for the market uh, long term. So we've covered some really great, interesting points to help those be aware of some of the operational issues we often see in the digital asset space. I think one key takeaway I see uh, is that if you're considering entering into this emerging asset class, there are certainly a lot of risks associated um, not only from an operational accounting tax perspective, but also in terms of IT security and how you manage those assets and custody of those assets to keep them safe. So our advice would be to make sure if you are entering into this asset class to consult with legal, accounting, IT personnel with significant experience in this asset class to, to help you make sure you address all the key risks early and head off issues later. So with that, we'll wrap up today's podcast. Thank you, Will. And thank you to everyone who joined us. Do not hesitate to reach out to us if you have any further questions and have a fantastic day. Thank you, Corey. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights. Subscribe to this podcast series at cohencpa.com slash podcasts. To gain more insights that may impact you, visit us at cohencpa.com slash impact. Cohen and Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action based on information in this podcast should only be taken after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law.